Our scripture reading this evening is from Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. We'll begin at verse 7 until the end. Romans 7, 7. Hear the word of God. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once. But when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life I found to be unto death. For sin, taken occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do I allow not, for what I would that do I not, but what I hate that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that, in my, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am! Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. May God bless the reading of his word to our souls. Emily, we want to look at the Tenth Commandment. We've been following the law of God as expounded in the Heidelberg Catechism. Every commandment in the Catechism has just a wonderful, wonderful summary of what the whole Bible is essentially saying about that commandment. And the Tenth Commandment seems to be a kind of exception. For some odd reason, there's very little about what it means to covet, at least at first glance. But I want to show you tonight that in reality, the Catechism goes deeper about this than we first realize. So the Tenth Commandment is, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. And tonight we're going to be focusing on several texts, but particularly some material from Romans 7, verses 7 through 9, and verses 22 through 25. And I just wanted to read verse 7 again at the outset here. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. 
For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. So let's read Lord's Day 44. Lord's Day 44, questions 113 through 115. What does the Tenth Commandment require of us? That even the smallest inclination or thought, contrary to any of God's commandments, never rise in our hearts, but that at all times we hate all sin with our whole heart and delight in all righteousness. But can those who are converted to God perfectly keep these commandments? No. But even the holiest men, while in this life, have only a small beginning of disobedience, yet so that with a sincere resolution they begin to live, not according to some, but all the commandments of God. And finally, why will God then have the Ten Commandments so strictly preached? since no man in this life can keep them. First, that all our lifetime we may learn more and more to know our sinful nature and thus become the more earnest in seeking the remission of sin and righteousness in Christ. Likewise, that we constantly endeavor and pray to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit that we may become more and more conformable to the image of God till we arrive at the perfection proposed to us in a life to come. When I read this Lord's Day, I just marvel. I just marvel that God gave a 26-year-old man and a 28-year-old man such wisdom to summarize the 10th commandment and then all 10 commandments in so few words And what a treasure, what a treasure we have before us tonight in this topical sermon on the Tenth and the Ten Commandments. So we're going to talk about the fruits of that, hence the title, Fruits of the Tenth and the Ten Commandments. The three of them, we'll see a wholehearted hatred against sin, question 113, a sincere resolution for obedience, Question 114, an earnest search for conformity to Christ. Question 115. Now, a good deal of our time will be spent on 113, so points 2 and 3 will be after we sing this evening. So what does it mean to covet? What does it mean to covet? Well, the Hebrew Old Testament word for covet really means to delight in something and to love it passionately. It means negatively, the sinful side of it, to regard something that I don't have as essential to have. That is, to set my affections on an object that I love but is not really legitimate for me. Now, covet can also be used in a good way, of course. Paul in the New Testament says, covet earnestly the best gifts. Covet earnestly. 1 Corinthians 12, 31. So it's biblical, for example, to covet, to desire earnestly the prayers of God's people. But usually in the biblical context, the word covet is used negatively, desiring illegitimate things, craving something that my neighbor has that I don't have but wish I had. So boys and girls or young people, sometimes uh, you might covet something you, you see in one of your peers or something one of your peers has. I remember my wife coming home from teaching Sunday school several years ago and telling me this incredible story of uh, asking for prayer requests of the six- and seven-year-olds Sunday afternoon. And one little boy raised his hand, and he said, I need a bike. But there was a little girl there 
was six years old also, and she just piped right up. She was a pretty good little theologian. She said, that's not a need, that's a want. And see, that's exactly right. That little boy was coveting, wasn't he? Coveting resides in all of our hearts. Whether we're two years old and fighting our brother and sister because we want something that our brother and sister has right now, whether we're a teenager or whether we're already old and still desiring things from this life. Are you coveting something right now in your life that you wish you had? Some possession? Or are you like the woman of Shunem? When Elisha asked, I'll give you anything you want, basically. Just let me know. And she said, well, I dwell among my own people. I'm, I'm content with where I'm at and with what I have. So that's the Old Testament word for covet. The New Testament has two words, actually, in Greek that are translated as covet. One word simply means a lover of silver. In the King James Version, it's translated a lover of money. That is to say, someone who loves money that always wants more and wants to covet it. It means to be driven by the desire to always have more. So to covet in this sense means you shall not crave that which belongs to someone else, whether it be his home, his wife, his car, his job, his money, or anything else. So this word really accents this idea of of craving. Now, It's possible to crave actively, and it's possible to crave passively. That's why some of our forefathers made a distinction between active covetousness and passive covetousness. What what does that mean? Well, active covetousness is the spirit of materialism that permeates our world today. It's the mainspring in the lives of many people. It rules the heart and ruins the soul. The spirit of covetousness causes a person to aggressively go out and try to, try to get something. And then when you get it, two weeks later you need to get something else. It's like a little child gets a brand new toy plays with it for a couple days, and suddenly the toy is set aside. I want a new toy. But it's not just children, it's adults. My son actually has told me sometimes that when they buy a home and they clean it out and fix it up and then resell it, he says, you you won't believe, you won't believe the stuff that some people leave behind. Just valuable stuff, but they had it for a little while. They thought they needed it, and then they just discarded it and just piles up in their home. Stuff, and more stuff, and more stuff. It's symptomatic, you see, of a, of a covetous personality. That's a problem. It's sort of like uh, opening a a Pepsi. And you, you drink it and it tastes good and you put it back in the refrigerator and you forget that it's there and four days later, a week later, you try the other half. Oh, no fizz in it. doesn't taste good anymore. And that's the way it is with a lot of things. It loses its fizz in a matter of days. And, and people just discard it. And they're looking for something else. You see, the problem is, what, what, what you really need is you need God. And only God can fill, only God can fill your empty heart. And yet you keep trying to believe the devil and worldly people that somehow, if you only had this or that, 
you would, you'd be happy. You'd, you'd be content. And so you go out and buy it. You put it on your credit card. When you don't have money on the card, you, you go beyond your limits. You're driven then by active covetousness. But there's also a thing called passive covetousness. It's a bit different. That's involved when you don't actually go after the things you crave. Maybe you realize you just don't have the money or, or, for, or, or for a variety of reasons. Maybe you don't have the opportunity, but you still crave them. Passive covetousness works on the inside. It actually makes you resentful of people that have things or gifts that you don't have. And it can make you jealous. It can make you bitter. It even can make you judge other people. Say, well, so-and-so has that, and I wish I had that, but why? what's he doing buying that anyway? He can't afford it. He shouldn't be having it. And you smolder on the inside, and you judge other people. But either way, you see, whether it's passive or active, covetousness focuses on things, on outward success in life, on outward appearances, perhaps, or on popularity. Maybe, maybe you're in high school and you wish you were as popular as someone else. That's covetousness. Or maybe you're covetous of positions or influence. You see, the bottom line of covetousness is that it's selfish. Your life is revolving around you. Covetousness says, I'm the center of this world. I'm center stage of my life. Everything must revolve around me. Everything must come to me. I want that person's job. Or I wish my wife was like that husband's wife. Or I want that person's friends. And this is essentially worldly to the core. This is the philosophy of this world. I am the God of this world. The the be-all and the end-all is me. And the Tenth Commandment, you see, demolishes the whole rationale of how this present evil world lives. And so it's no wonder that this world is hostile to God and to His Word because the Bible actually tells us to live exactly the opposite way, to love God above all and to love my neighbor as myself. Thou shalt not covet. So the point of this commandment, and Paul makes it, that point so well in Romans 7, is that other commandments can seem so obvious on the surface if you go out and steal something, you've, you've, you've broken the Eighth Commandment. But coveting is an internal commandment of the heart more than any other. That's why Paul said it was because Paul was strict, right? He was a Pharisee. He was obeying all the outward elements of the commandments. But he said, when God showed me, thou shalt not covet. When God showed me my inner heart, Sin revived. I realized I was a sinner after all. And I died. I died to my own righteousness. You see, covetousness is the worst kind of enemy you can have. Because it's an internal enemy. It betrays you. It betrays you against yourself. From inside of you. It backstabs you. No one likes to be backstabbed by someone else. But covetousness does it to yourself. It leads you into every other sin. Covetousness is lurking. Did you ever think about that? Behind nearly every other sin you commit. And that's why this commandment is actually a compassionate commandment. Because God is warning you, judging you, of course, but warning you not to live this way, not to live like the world lives. He wants to give you a lesson of the anatomy of your own soul. He wants to dissect your soul. He wants to show you who you are, how you function. He wants to show you your inner problems. That you too are a fallen sinner and you too are prone to put your heart in the things of this life. 
So this, this commandment, the Holy Spirit uses to help us see who we are, to give us self-understanding, to understand what makes you tick, what pleases you. Is it the things of God? Is it the glory of God? Or is it stuff or things you want in life or people you want around you? Does that satisfy you? And the Tenth Commandment is saying to you, don't covet. Don't give room to these natural grasping ways. You grasp things and take them to yourself. But you're to live a, a life where, of open hands where you give away. It is more blessed to give than to receive, Jesus says. See, if you covet and it gets inside of you, it's sort of like getting cancer. It will just spread and it will take over. It will take control of you. Some time ago, I, I saw a woman walking down Leonard Street. A small woman with a big dog. And she was taking the dog for a walk. Well, that's what we say. But when I watched the, the two of them walk, I actually thought the dog is taking her for a run. I mean, the dog was about as big as the woman, and the woman was just trying to keep up with the dog. The dog was stronger than she was. And she was at the other end of the leash, running to keep up. And you see, that's what covetousness does. It's pulling at you. You look at something and say, well, I, yeah, I really should have that. Everyone else in my business has that. I think I'll go out and I'll get it. But you don't think of the possible temptations, the consequences, the money, the effort. And this will be just another thing that you've got to keep up with in your life. And you've got too many things already, too many possessions already. That little dog becomes a big dog. And the big dog starts to run you when your life is centered on physical things. So covetousness has a way of taking charge of your life, going ahead of you, running you from within. And when it does that, you see, it may look beautiful, it may look attractive, but it actually stifles you. It's like an ivy that chokes a good plant. Covetousness is choking you from within. And so that's what our instructors are getting at. Even though they don't address covetousness directly, what they're saying is, this is a summary commandment. It summarizes all the other sins. Think about it with me. What motivates people when they murder someone else? Usually they're covetous about something. What motivates people to commit adultery and destroy their lives? Well, they're coveting that other person. Why do people steal? Well, they usually, at least, are coveting the thing they steal. That's why our forefathers said, this sin is the root of all the other sins. And so what that does, the Tenth Commandment reveals to us, more than any other commandment, the spirituality, the spirituality of the law of God. That the law is not just about external things. The law is about, remember Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven 37 to 40, loving God above all, loving my neighbor as myself. It's the spirit of how I live. And when I'm not doing that, when I'm living with life surrounding me, I'm sinning against the law every single second of my life when I'm not a true believer. Every second. Every second I don't love God above all, and by nature I never love God above all, I'm sinning. Every second I don't love my neighbors myself, and I'm when I'm, when I'm an unbeliever, every single second, I'm never loving my neighbors myself. I'm sinning. So I'm piling up all these sins, Paul says. I, I did the outward stuff, Paul says. But oh, the law came to me in the form of thou shalt not covet it. And it penetrated me. And, and I saw I'm, I'm a sinner. That's all I am, a sinner. Sin revived. And I died. I died to my own righteousness because I finally saw who I really was. So, 
Our instructor puts it this way. That even the smallest inclination or thought, contrary to any of God's commandments, never rise in our hearts. Now notice this. But that at all times we hate all sin with our whole heart and delight in all righteousness. Now you understand why my first point is a wholehearted hatred against sin. When, When God uses the law to show us who we are, and we see our need for a Savior outside of ourselves, and we see the dastardly character of our sin and, and our sinful nature and how that we desperately need a Savior, we, we will come to hate all sin, all sin. I wish that all sin in me were dead. Every believer can say that. I hate it. I hate not living for the purpose for which I am created. But not only do you hate it when you're a true believer, but God hates it as well. God hates covetousness. He hates it for three reasons. Number one, because it excludes him. Covetousness puts stuff on the throne or me on the throne instead of God. It seeks to ungod God. Covetousness says, I will live for things material. I will put materialism on the throne. I'll put myself on the throne rather than the living God. And secondly, covetousness insults God. It insults God. It's God who made you and me the crown of His creation for one purpose, to glorify Him, to love Him above all, to worship the Creator of the creation and not worship the creation. He made us as His masterpiece. It's His will that we would serve Him and glorify Him as the masterpiece of creation. So it's an insult to God when we worship the creature rather than the creator. And in the process, it diminishes us as well. It makes us so shallow. We think the more we get, or the more we get the things we want anyway, the more important we are. The more we have, the more special we are. But God looks at the heart. God looks at your heart and says, I made you with an eternal soul. But look at what you're buying. Look at what you're craving. Your soul is being sold to a perishing world. You're deceived. You're belittling yourself. You could have me. You could have treasures far more than any earthly thing can afford. Whom have I, Lord, in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee, said Asaph. That's what you want if you really want to live for the purpose for which you were created. And you see, when you miss that purpose, you're just deluding yourself. You're just being a self-sufficient whirling, or trying to be, who thinks only about shallow things. So covetousness excludes God, tries to push Him out to the marginalia of my life. It also insults Him, and then it calluses us. And God hates that. God doesn't want us to have a seared conscience, to be calloused, to be hardened, to be coarse and abrasive against Him. But that's what covetousness does. Covetousness makes me not feel the pain of my neighbor when he's in pain. Covetousness makes me only feel things about myself. All the tears I shed are all about me. Selfish tears. When we get covetousness in our blood, we really treat other people like objects. We use them to try to get what we want. It's so sad. It's such a sad, shallow way to live. We need God. God will teach you how to love God will teach you how to glorify Him. No psychologist can give you some kind of treatment to solve this problem. No medicine can be taken to solve this problem. 
No chemotherapy will do the job. You can't take covetousness out of you once it gets into you. Only God can do it. And why? Well, it all goes back to our fall. Genesis 3, verse 6. Eve coveted that fruit. She saw it was good taste. She thought she'd become wise with it. It was all about her. She took of it. She ate. She gave it to Adam. And that nature is now passed down to all of us. We get it straight from our parents. The sin of it is imputed to us. And the pollution of it is passed down by our parents. We come into the world as covetous people. You don't have to teach an 18-month-old toddler how to be covetous, do you? One of the first words they learn is, me, mine, my. They're covetous. So there is one, there is only one, who can cure us of the covetousness we have by nature. And he's the one who can come inside of us by his Holy Spirit and remake us into a new creation and rebuild us from the inside out. And that's exactly what we need, dear church family. We don't only need God to forgive us, as great as that is. Forgiveness is a wonderful thing. But we need to be born again. We need a new heart, newly fashioned, refocused. We need invasive divine surgery. We need a divine Savior who gives a new taste. So we learn to taste the things of God, to love the things of God, to love things spiritual and heavenly, a taste restored that we lost in paradise. And that's only the Holy Spirit who can give that to us. He can make us a self-giver rather than a self-taker. Because the Son that He reveals to us is the utterly non-covetous Redeemer. He determined from the stillness of the Council of Peace in the past to remake lost sinners. He determined to make them enjoy Himself and enjoy insights into His truth. He determined to give them hearts for things that are more noble than those things that are limited to this earth. He determined to be Himself the remedy. And to accomplish that, He had to come and pay the price of sin. He had to come and give His blood to die on the cross without a single possession to His name. His last possession, His robe, was taken from Him. And there He hung, naked on the cross, with nothing of this world's goods. But He was a Savior of sinners all over the world. So that poor, needy sinners, covetous sinners, may come to Him with empty hands, holding nothing but sin, holding nothing but covetousness, and may find at the cross forgiveness and deliverance and the power to be remade. Jesus is the answer. By the Spirit, taking the things of Christ, revealing them to us for this sin of covetousness. He's the antonym of all our sins. He left His crown. He left His throne. He left His glory to come in Bethlehem's manger to trod the Via Dolorosa to cast aside all the wealth of glory to empty Himself and make Himself of no reputation. And Paul says, let this mind be in you that was in Him. Our Savior is the profound opposite of all covetousness. Christ punished instead of me. Christ now interceding, living for me. Giving, still giving, 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 giving his whole self for his turtle dove. His heart is set upon his church, whom he loves. He's the ever liveth one, ever living. He's always living to make intercession for you, dear believer. His work wasn't done. His work of humiliation was done on Calvary. But His work is going on even now. He's always giving, giving, giving. Because He loves to do His Father's will. And He loves you. And He rejoices over you with singing. Isn't that amazing? 
He's so centered upon your spiritual well-being. He's your remedy for all your covetous, grasping ways. And He can turn your hands from going like this to going like this. To be a giver. And to get joy in giving to His kingdom, to His glory, to the well-being of people in word, in deed. To turn from your self-centered ways Turn to this utterly uncovetous Redeemer who can liberate you from that internal enemy of covetousness within. He can teach you to hate all sin. Like Paul says, that sin would become exceeding sinful. He uses His Tenth Commandment to teach me My whole being is sin. My whole being is unrighteous. I need to turn to this Redeemer and find my all in Him so that I can hate sin, all sin, with my whole heart and delight in all righteousness. But can those, 114, who are converted to God perfectly keep these commandments? No. But even the holiest men while in this life have only a small beginning of this obedience. Yet so, yet so, that with a sincere resolution, they begin to live not only according to some, but all the commandments of God. Incredible answer. What a beautiful summary of all of Paul's epistles in these uh, few words. This is so bibline. Every phrase is taken right from Paul's epistles. So, why? why? Why should the law even be preached if people can't keep it perfectly and God demands perfection? Why Why doesn't God just solve all these problems and make His people perfect? I just had a man ask me that in Texas this last week. He said, I'm really grappling with this question. Why would God allow sin to still be in His people? Why such a small beginning of this obedience? God can do everything, can't He? He said to me. Why would God allow me to still have to battle sin, to have to be in this holy war. Well, there are reasons for that. We don't know all the reasons, perhaps. One reason, certainly, is the Lord wants to keep His people poor and needy, dependent on Him. The second reason is He wants to give His people reasons every day to be humbled before their God and Savior, so we keep decreasing and He keeps increasing. third reason is to make the blood of Christ continuously precious to us. And a fourth reason is to make us long for perfection. If we were perfect here, it'd be like heaven on earth, wouldn't it? We wouldn't be longing for perfection in, in the heaven to come, which is the last reason, to long for heaven, where I'll be done with sin forever. The day is coming, dear child of God, where you will have no more sin where you will be totally focused on the glory of God and love everyone in glory, even as yourself. You will obey the law perfectly there. But here, here it's a small beginning. A small beginning. And yet, there's a resolution. There's a a longing. There's a holy resolve that I want to live, not according to some, but all the commandments of God. I don't want to give 50% of my life to God. I don't want to tithe 10% of my life to God. I want to give 100% of my life to God, despite all my shortcomings. Thou knowest all things, Lord. Despite my shortcomings, Thou knowest that I love Thee. And I love Thee because Thou hast first loved me. You see, that's what the instructors are talking about here. 
the holiest of men have only a small beginning. But they resolve to begin to live according to all the commandments of God. So there's a battle. There's a holy war. It's the holy war of Romans 7. When I would do evil, I find... When I would do good, I find evil. When I, when I would reject evil, I, I, I'm still battling. I, I find imperfection. I desire the law of God after the inward man. This is not an unconverted person talking in Romans 7, to 25. It's a saved person. An unconverted person doesn't delight in the law of God after the inward man. But there's a struggle between the new creation, the new man, which is the core of my being if I'm a believer, and the old nature, which is trying to interrupt, trying to, trying to regain lost territory, coming in from all sides. There's a frontline battle going on in my soul and in your soul if you're a true believer. And it makes you cry out, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Every child of God has these struggles. Sometimes, as pastors, some of you say to us, well, I, I don't think I can be a child of God because I just struggle with sin so much. Huh. That's a good sign. It's not a bad sign. It's the unbeliever that feels pretty comfortable with sin and can say, oh, it's okay. I sin over here. It's not too bad. At least I'm not too bad over there. And... Uh, well, I'm better than my neighbor, and you know how it goes. But when you're a believer, you see every sin as a sin against God. Every sin, there are no little peccadillo sins. Every sin is a major sin when you're a believer because you've offended the God you love. Yes, one sin is worse than another sin, but there are no small sins with God. And the believer understands that. And so true Christianity is, is a fight. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? It's a holy war, as Bunyan says. And the holy war comes through eye gate and it comes through ear gate, but it's also in, in, in the heart. It's in the heart, in the core of the person. And yet, you see, there's this holy resolution. I want to obey God. Totally. I want to dedicate every chunk of my life to Him. The way I spend my leisure time, my friendships, my hobbies, my, my, my work, my, my daily output. I want everything to be to the glory of God. Oh God, help me. Is there an answer for me? Well, is there an answer in Romans 7? Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, wretched man, that I am who shall deliver me from the body of this death, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. And so, even though the believer still battles to, the, to his last breath, the believer doesn't live like the unbeliever. The unbeliever... One old Puritan put it this way. I love this expression because I think it's so true. The unbeliever clings to sin. The believer runs from sin but finds that sin is clinging to him. And he's looking for grace and help and strength to say no to sin, to live holy and solely for God. And so the law needs to be preached. The law needs to be preached. To convict us of sin... And to, to drive us to Christ. And to yearn for conformity to Jesus. Hence question 115. Why will God then have the Ten Commandments so strictly preached? Since no man in this life can keep them. That is, keep them perfectly. Notice these two reasons. First, that all our lifetime we may learn more and more to know our sinful nature. And thus become the more earnest in seeking the remission of sin and righteousness in Christ. That's first. You see, everything inside of me as a fallen human being wants to justify myself for everything I do and everything I don't do that I should do. 
The natural man has a way of justifying every sin of commission, every sin of omission. You've always got an excuse. You've always got a reason. You've always got a self-defensive mechanism in place. But when God comes with His Holy Spirit, who uses the law, it penetrates your soul and says, Thou shalt not covet. If it's His saving work, He will empty you of your own righteousness. And you'll lose all your excuses. All your excuses. And all your lifetime, you will learn to know more and more and more. I've got a sinful flesh that's still clinging to me. But it will just make you. It will just cause you to to be driven to Christ as the answer. Isn't that the last 10 Lord's Day or 11 Lord's Days? Isn't that the answer for every commandment? At the end of every sermon, you heard that, didn't you? We have to go to Christ with all our sins against this commandment. He's the answer every time for every commandment. Because he obeyed the law perfectly. He never didn't love God above all. He never didn't love his neighbor as himself. And when you believe in him alone for salvation, you see, his obedience is imputed to you. And your sins and your hell worthiness are imputed to him. And therefore, the law has a very important place to play. It's God's normal way to lead a sinner to Jesus by taking the law and showing him his sinfulness and his need for the Savior and making him hunger more and more to know this Savior, to find his righteousness in Christ. So when we get saved, we learn to discover our own unrighteousness and we learn to discover Christ's righteousness And that makes all the difference. All the difference. If I'm in Christ, I have His righteousness. And then He looks upon me as if I had never sinned. Because His obedience is mine. And my sins were taken upon Him. That's what the gospel is. That's the whole of the gospel. It's all summarized in 2 Corinthians 5.21, isn't it? For He who knew no sin became sin, that we may be made The righteousness of God in Him. Only in Him. So we need to preach the law. We need to convict you. By the grace of the Holy Spirit. We need to aim for that in preaching, actually. It's amazing today in so many evangelical churches. I've heard it myself many times. Preacher will make a really good point, really convict people of their sin, and then they'll say, oh, by the way, I, I don't really mean to put you on a guilt trip for this. I'm thinking, what? Really not? You really don't want to make people feel guilty for not living in and through and by and out of and unto the Lord Jesus Christ? Contrast that with what one Puritan said. In preaching, we take the law like a stick in our hand and we beat behind every bush until we bring old Adam out from behind the bush and we stand him naked before God. You see, that's what true preaching does. It convicts you. It empties you of your own righteousness by the grace of the Holy Spirit. It makes you stand naked before God so you cry out, clothe me, Lord Jesus, in the white robe righteousness of thy own merits. And help me to live out of that righteousness more and more. That's the second part here. Notice the last part of the answer. Likewise, that we constantly endeavor and pray to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit that we may become more and more conformable to the image of God till we arrive at the perfection proposed to us in a life to come. So here, sanctification is progressive. There's ups and downs. You never reach perfection. Contrary to what the perfectionists say. You know, one time I worked in a men's clothing store when I was 17 years old. I worked in the basement, tagging things. And there was another man there with me, the two of us. Lots of time to talk as we're tagging things. And uh, he was a perfectionist. He belonged to a Pentecostal church. He said, I've never sinned. I've never sinned. I just do what's right. He was just like Paul. I obey the law. I said to him, 
So you've, you've never once in your life lusted after a woman. Oh, I can't say that. He said, I said, well, you sinned. What did Jesus say about lusting? You, you committed adultery in your heart. Oh, if you look at sin that way, he said. I said, what, what way do you look at sin? Just in the outward way? Well, yeah, he said. I said, well, then you're not being biblical. Sin resides primarily in the heart. Sin is an inward thing, ultimately, preeminently. We sin more by our sins of omission than we do by our sins of commission. All the time he said, I have to think about that one. But you see, he was trained. As a Christian, you can reach perfection. You never sin. No, no, no. We constantly endeavor and pray to God that we may become more and more conformable to the image of God, more God-like, delivered more and more from the dominion of sin. But notice, till we finally arrive at the perfection proposed to us in the life to come. In the life to come. So the law has to be preached to drive us to Christ and then to be a guide for us once we're in Christ. To be a guide for us once we're in Christ. So every one of the commandments deals with a whole chunk of our life. Seventh commandment deals with marriage. Eighth commandment deals with possessions. Thou shalt not steal. Ninth commandment deals with truth. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Tenth commandment deals with inward desire, the the, the heart motivations. And so these commandments, by the tutelage of the Holy Spirit, also help us after we're Christians. Now, not to merit anything, but now we want to live according to all the commandments of God. We want to say with David, Oh, how love I thy law! I will run in the way of all thy commandments. We want to do that out of gratitude. See, that's what Lord's Day, that's why Lord's Day 34 through 44, the exposition of the law, is in the section of gratitude. Because a Christian learns to walk according to God's law out of gratitude for salvation at the cross. That's why Martin Luther said, The law is like a stick. God first uses it to beat me to Christ, convict me of my sin. It's called the evangelical use of the law, the first use of the law. But then God puts it, once I'm in Christ, he puts it in my hand like a cane to help me walk the Christian life. That's very different. Calvin said that's the primary use of the law. To help me walk the Christian life. Thou shalt not commit adultery means in its flip side, thou shalt love thy wife with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy mind and all thy strength. And so the law helps us by convicting us and bringing us to Christ. And then it helps us by teaching us how to live the Christian life practically in every area of life. So, The law is our friend, not our enemy, even though it does, even though it does convict us. So we need to, we need to more and more seek to live by that law, not to merit anything, but out of gratitude to God, longing for the day when we will be delivered altogether. So the law is the servant of the gospel. There's a relationship there that's very important to understand. Ralph Erskine, a very famous 18th century preacher in Scotland, uh, has a wonderful sermon on the law and gospel. And he says this, Some are so foolish that when they meet the maid servant of the gospel, that is, when they meet the law, they fall in love with the law and they never get married to the gospel. In other words, When you come under conviction of sin, you're never going to be able to solve the problem outside of the gospel. The law drives you to the gospel. And when we are truly confronted with the law of God, we cannot marry such a cruel husband, a husband who curses us and condemns us and does not listen to our prayers and petitions because we can never satisfy the law. We keep on sinning. But when we are genuinely confronted by the law, 
the Holy Spirit uses that confrontation together with gospel allurements to drive us to Jesus Christ. And when the Holy Spirit brings us to despair of our own righteousness and we find that righteousness in Christ, then, you see, we go back to the law and we say, Oh God, help me. Help me to live holy and solely to Thee out of the law. Loving thee above all, loving my neighbor as myself. So, in this way, you see, the Holy Spirit conforms God's people more and more to the image of God and of Christ by driving them to the Savior and then by teaching them how to walk the Christian life. Now, as I walk the Christian life, according to the law, I do that, of course, against the backdrop of the gospel. I never merit anything. Everything in me is always imperfect. But I do that recognizing that I'm washed and cleansed by the blood of Christ, by the perfect obedience of Christ. And so my whole lifetime, I'm growing in self-disesteem in terms of being able to be the source of the gospel myself. And I'm growing in Christ's esteem in understanding more and more and more that He's everything I need, both in this life and in the life to come. So He becomes the altogether lovely one. He becomes the plant of renown. He becomes my all and in all. And just in proportion as we are led down into the knowledge of our sinful selves, in that proportion we are led up into the knowledge of this glorious Redeemer and Savior, our treasure, our first love, our all in it all, even Jesus. So to grow in Jesus is to grow in self-knowledge. To grow in self-knowledge is to be driven more and more to Jesus. How did you fare? Let me close with this. How did you fare under the preaching of the law these last three or four months? What did you do with the conviction of sin that hopefully every one of these Lord's Days pressed home upon you? Did you take your sin to Christ? Did you find in Him total deliverance? And are you now trying to live the law out of gratitude to Him? Saying, I do want only not to do the thou shalt nots, but I want to do the flip side of each commandment. Thou shalt. Thou shalt. And I do that out of love for that Savior who did it perfectly for me. Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation. Day and night. How I can live more as a Christian and be more like him and more like the triune God who saved me and bought me with his own blood. Well, for all these reasons, the law must be preached. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank Thee for the law that leads us to the gospel and for the gospel that leads us back to the law. And we do pray that we may wholeheartedly seek to obey Thee in Thy every commandment, out of gratitude to thee, and learn to say with David, how love I thy law. But do, Lord, do continue to convict us of our shortcomings, that we be driven again and again to Jesus, always, always understanding the struggle within that we don't yet appear to be and are not what we ought to be, even as we thank thee that we are not what we once were, So help us then to trot on the narrow pathway to life eternal, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And be near to us and bless us, we pray. In Jesus, for his name and for our salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.